Hello, Philip. Hello, Rachel. How's it going? Good. Yes, very good. Here we are, another week, another shekel, dollar, was it? I don't know. It's going to be a dollar for me because by the time you are all listening to this, I would be in the United States of America. She will, sat in a room waiting to be deported. Um, <laughs> I really no, hope not. This is really exciting. You're off tomorrow as we record to yeah. the US of A. Tell us what you're doing. I'm going to present at the Libud Festival for people from the former Soviet Union. It's very niche, but very lovely. What happened was I was at Limud, Finland, and the person who books for this one heard me talking about how I'd lived in Minsk. I know you love it when I say that for the bingo card. And he thought, wow, here's this British religious woman who lived in Belarus. Would be interesting to have a talk to all of us about that. That is lovely. How long are you out there for? Literally about 20 seconds. Now, I'm arriving <laughs> on Thursday and I'm leaving on Monday because the conference is literally just over the weekend. It's Friday to Sunday. If you're just going in for a very quick visit, are you sure when it was booked, they didn't say, so we're just going to zoom you in and zoom you out again? And <laughs> they think you're going to be dialing in for a video conference and you're actually going to turn up on their door going, hello, I'm here. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. They have sent me all the details of the flights and everything, which is somewhat reassuring. But that is the kind of mistake I would make. Yeah. I don't know how many of the sessions that other people are doing are going to be in Russian and how many are going to be in English. So it's going to be an interesting weekend. But predominantly, I'm going to see aeroplane, bus to hotel, hotel, bus back to aeroplane and aeroplane uh, with a few deviations for meals. Sorry, I thought you were getting all rock and roll there. When you said bus to hotel, I thought you said bus to hotel. I thought you were going to like, take your TV, throw it through the window. I just think that's because I'm too from to watch telly. Yeah, presumably that's your most Jewish thing of the week then. Well, there is an aspect of it that's my most Jewish thing of the week. And that is that I'm only going for a few days and they obviously cover all the costs of me coming. And... You know, somebody who's only staying somewhere for four nights probably doesn't need that many clothes, etc. So the ticket is a hand luggage only ticket. But they haven't considered the fact that everybody's asked me to bring them back different food related things, which you can't take in hand luggage. So I've had to add a case like to pay for baggage in the hold for both legs of the journey just so that I can bring food. I see. So you're taking food out and you're bringing food back. Yep. And you're just going to wear the clothes that you're taking with you for the entire flight to save space. Absolutely. That's the plan. Exciting. Well, I look forward to seeing what goodies you bring back. If they happen to be peanut butter M&Ms, then so be it. Surprise us. (laughs) Peanut butter M&Ms, which would kill me, but would be a generous gift for somebody else. What about you, Philip? What's been your most Jewish moment of the week? Well, mine was almost religious to some extent, which is rare for me. You'll remember two weeks ago, we had the lovely Tim Samuels on the podcast and he was my madrich, my leader when I was in the youth groups. And I had a a blast in the past flashback experience evening recently with not Tim, he wasn't there, but lots of former friends and leaders from the RSY days because one of my best friends, her daughter, celebrated her bar mitzvah this past weekend. And I say bar mitzvah because 
the way they had chosen to write it was sort of be apostrophe mitzvah to give an all accessible, all inclusive, gender neutral feel to the affair. So nobody felt in any way excluded. So it was a mitzvah because of various issues. There wasn't really a service that people were coming to, but we all went to a party in the evening. And it was just really lovely to see these blasts from the past, these faces. But it really struck me how you never forget the way you knew someone the first time. So there were people there who I was almost starstruck by simply because they were some of my first kind of authority figures outside of my parents and my teachers. You're there going, oh my gosh, am I allowed to go and talk to them? Like, we're equal now, but no, I, they, they've all grown up, got children. We've grown up, got children. It was a really lovely evening. I love the idea that your old leaders are like the rock stars of your youth, these big figures you didn't know if you could approach. Well, it did feel like that. But also, I know that if I was approached by someone who I was their madrich, I don't know that I would remember them because you're one person and you're looking after yeah. 20 people and maybe it's over a few years, there's five times of that, so it's 100 people. So how are you going to remember? remember everybody the thought that you would go to somebody and say oh my goodness do you remember we used to... they'd be like no I think that's the rock star effect of it why would they remember me because presumably I had less impact on their life than they had on mine just because of the dynamic of leaders versus participants mm. it's funny that you say that because this weekend's just gone I stayed in Ilford because it was Shabbat UK, which around the rest of the world is known as the Shabbat Project, a communal event that different communities put on stuff for over Shabbat. And I was staying at the Danskys, Siobhan and Rabbi Stephen. And I'm mentioning their name specifically because they are listeners to the show. Siobhan has been a listener to this show right from the beginning. And in fact, she told me she was quite scared to make chicken soup on Friday night because she didn't know if it would get an honourable mention or a dishonourable mention to depending on whether I approved of it or not. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because there was a Q&A session as part of my performance over the weekend. And one of the questions that got asked was, how do I and Siobhan know each other? And she was gleeful to tell everyone that was because I was her madracha in Oswestry in 1980-something. We went to Oswestry. Well, you and me. No, but RSY, there was a... <laughs> yeah, everyone the... went to. Everyone stayed in the same like group of boarding schools that were near there. Yeah. So one winter camp, presumably, I was a madracha for B'nai Kiva, and she was one of the kids. And I obviously made an impression on her. I can't say I remember remember a single thing about it but, but that's what I mean I think that the leader has more of a, an impact and that's not to say that young people can't have an impact on older people I'm not saying that but I just think if I were to go up to somebody and say do you remember me the chances slim with the exception of the fact that clearly I now live this showbiz lifestyle and everyone, <laughs> everyone knows who we are well it happened for me because I married one of the Majachim so now I'm friends with all his friends who are all the people who took me at camp so it's very surreal real but it's also kind of lovely and also as you get older that age gap kind of closes doesn't it and you can all be friends again it does well we have been chatting for far too long and there is an episode that people i'm sure are dying to listen to so who have we got this week rachel we have uh, two of our friends and fellow comedians daphna baram and mike capazola they are both
both blow-ins to the UK because Mike's Italian-American and Daphna's originally Israeli, although now she is British. She's got her certificate to prove it. And we recorded it a while ago and it had some lovely moments when we were listening back to the edit. For example, we've mentioned Chicken Soup a minute ago and Siobhan's anxiety about it, but Daphna did something amazing. In one of her shows a few years ago in Edinburgh, she talked about Chicken Soup and she provided the audience with the recipe for her chicken soup and in fact she's given us a copy to share with our audience we're going to put it on our social media and if you do make Duffner's chicken soup recipe please tweet in or reply to the Instagram or send photos let us know so we can pass it on to her that would make her very very happy it was also nice to talk to Mike who was telling us about his experiences doing the Sitsit festival which as we all know was the recent Jewish arts festival that took place here in the UK we were both quite involved in it so it's really nice hearing Mike talking about that. So lots to enjoy in this week's episode. Unfortunately, Daphne was experiencing some technical difficulties on the day, so her audio isn't as clear as we'd have all loved it to be, but you'll be able to hear, hopefully, the brilliant contributions that she made. Sit back and enjoy the show. Rachel Krieger. And I'm Philip Simon. We are two Jewish comedians. I'm Orthodox, so when it comes to religious belief, I have no trouble making my mind up. And I'm Reform, so when it comes to religious belief, I think the Big Bang happened in Space Man. This show is the audio equivalent of Eurovision. We're picked up around the world, can get ludicrously surreal, and are throwing our support behind Ukraine. In each episode, we chat to two of our favourite Jews about their lives and experiences growing up, and how much Jewishness plays a part. Are they bucks fizz or oh no just a diet coke for me thanks welcome to you talking to me Let's introduce our guests who are both comics with other very intriguing strings to their bows. Our first guest is the UK's number one Italian-American professional comedian, simply by default, but has previously been a mascot, a police sketch artist, an elementary school art teacher and a taxi driver. He's also an established actor with credits including Men in Black International. It's Mike Capazzola. Hi guys. Hey Mike. Our next guest was born in Jerusalem. She was a human rights lawyer in military courts in the West Bank and Gaza, a journalist and editor, and is often in demand as a literary translator. She's been a stand-up comedian since 2010 and is currently working on a PhD at Lancaster University about immigrant stand-up comedy in the UK. It's Daphna Baram. Hi, Jews. Hello. So nice to have you both with us. Now, regular listeners to the podcast will know we always like to start by finding out how our guests self-define as Jews. So you already know that Rachel is Orthodox and I'm Reform. But Mike, what kind of Jew are you? I was raised Reform, and I think it just comes down to secular Jew. What was the food word, Rachel? Culinary. They were a culinary, culinary Jew, Jew or a gastronomic Jew. Foodie Jew. Yeah, I I, <laughs> I, uh, I was raised Reform, but at some point after my bar mitzvah, I just kind of stopped going to services after a while. I, I do it in my own way. I just, I can't sit still. A large part of it is eight hours of services. I have no reason to go. Eight hours is a long service for anybody, I think. It's too much. It feels like eight hours. 
I think I resonate with that, having to sit still in shul. It, it never felt like somewhere you could just be yourself. You had to put on this show of, you know, being slightly more grown up than you actually were. So I recognize yeah. that. Just the other day, I was asked what my favorite bar mitzvah gift was. And it was a little wristwatch I got at my bar mitzvah from my mom's good friend. And it plays Pac-Man. It had two modes, beep, 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 or silent. And I would take <laughs> off the watch and hide it in the prayer book. And I looked like I was really paying attention, but I was really just <laughs> playing Pac-Man. And it got me through the services for a bit until I was found out, but I really looked like I was following along and it was the greatest gift, ironically, as a bar mitzvah gift. Whatever gets you through, that's what I feel. That beats the 19 pens I got. <laughs> <laughs> Daphna, what kind of a Jew are you? Guilt-ridden. I just thought about that. That's what I am, because I'm not I'm not a great Jew, obviously. I mean, you know, I'm a, an atheist. I'm an anti-Zionist. I live in East London. 150 years ago, this would have made me a proper Jew, but uh, now it makes me a bit of a messy one. In Israel, where I was born, and raised as a secular Jew. I think being Jewish defines you nationally rather than religiously. It makes you a part of the majority, a part of the ruling people, which I guess in a way has dictated my uh, political trajectory. Mm -hmm. Well, this is really something for afterwards. I was going to say, out of virtually everybody I know who has any Jewish heritage, you're the person who posts most on social media about Jewish foods. That's because I'm here, and this is the thing, that you're suddenly living away from your family and your community. I mean, I think also, it's not so much about Jewish food. A lot of it is about Middle Eastern food. I just miss everything. And also, I'm old now, and all my grandmothers are dead, and I keep missing their food, and I reminisce a lot about it, especially around holidays, particularly Christmas. A holiday that neither of my grandmothers obviously celebrated. But it's just whenever you have this thing, when you have people around and you're cooking, they just come from hell and start interfering in your kitchen. Uh, <laughs> when people hear about it, they always go, ah, oh, but actually it's unbearable. They're like, what are you doing? Nobody makes tahini like this. Well, that leads quite naturally into the next question. We always ask, what's the most Jewish thing that's happened to you recently? And one of the most Jewish things that happened to me recently was a mutual friend of ours, uh, who's a comedian, Dana Alexander, posted about comfort food. And Daphne and I both commented about chulant as a comfort food. We said, oh, we make it in a similar way. But it turned out our chulants were completely different. I thought about it when you asked what's really Jewish, because only yesterday I had a discussion with another friend of mine about the way that Israeli websites about food are feisty and contemporary. So you go to get a recipe, I don't know, it's like a fish or something. Uh, there is a Moroccan version for it, but there's also a Tunisian version for it and also a Libyan version to it. And then some Ashkenazi Jew comes and says, why do you put so much oil? And then everybody starts shouting <laughs> at you. This is how we make it. If you don't like it, go eat gefilte fish. And it's all happening on the thread under the recipe. I always find it amazing. That's great. This reminded me when we were having this discussion about the chillers, I was like, yeah, of course you wouldn't be putting hummus or whatever it is. Yeah, but have you not noticed that when you go online to look at a recipe, you can't ever just have the recipe. It's got to have the backstory first. Yeah. So you've got oh. to scroll through pages and pages of why this recipe is important. And I guess with Middle Eastern food, you're going to get all those different styles and opinions coming in. It's actually, as a journalist, like this is a really different perspective, but I'm finding it a little bit annoying because it started with people having fantastic food stories to tell and then recipes. And now it's just a little bit like, get on with it. You know, a lot of people don't really have much to say. I read a tweet, which is, a th I now find that in this show, I often say, I saw a meme or I read a tweet <laughs> where someone was suggesting that they're going to write a book about a serial killer who confesses publicly to all their crimes in the blurb before recipes. 
So <laughs> as everyone scrolls past all that, they go straight on to what you have to do. No one ever, like, never gets caught, never gets, which I thought was really funny. Um, Mike, what's been happening? What's Jewish? Uh, you guys know I do TV stuff. I auditioned for a commercial that's, I don't know yet if I have it, but it shoots in Israel and I have not ever been there in the winter. I've only been there in the summer and I was so excited that I assumed Sachlab would be easy to find. That was just immediately like, Sachlab, I can get Sachlab. And I was going to say, is it a drink or a food? But you, am I saying it right? Sachlab? Sachlab, yeah, Sachlab. What is I, it exactly was, for people it, who are listening? I only had it once. Daphne, what is it? It's basically a milk-based drink. It's Turkish by origin. Uh, Palestinians also do it. And it's milk, corn flour, rose water, and on top you put cinnamon and nuts and coconut. Uh, and you basically mm. buy it in the winter in the same places where you can buy burek and stuff like that. And you just kind of, you can drink it or you can eat it with a spoon. It kind of has this kind of like constituency. I love like, it. Uh, I make it sometimes here because I miss it so much. Right? I make it from scratch. Normally in Israel, you can buy it in the bag. But yeah, it's really nice. It's a meal and a drink. I'm allergic <laughs> to virtually every ingredient in that. <laughs> it's lovely though. So you were hoping to be able to find it in the winter if you if you go. That's the most Jewish that thought you had. That, that was it's the immediate... Daphne, you can just send me your address and I'll come there next time you make it. There's That's probably the easiest thing because there's no telling if I get this gig. More than welcome, five minutes. It's basically like making coffee. Daphne, what about you? What's the most Jewish thing that's happened to you recently? I think was the most Israeli thing that happened to me, actually. I uh, I went to Israel in May because my dad, uh, it was his 80th. And, you know, you come to Ben-Gurion Airport and they have these stations where they check you for COVID. Uh, and I had one look at the queue and I nearly had a heart attack. Like, it's massive, hundreds of people all queuing in the traditional Israeli way, which is basically a triangle. And, um, <laughs> and then, but then suddenly, uh, it's somehow, and this is also very typically Israeli, within two minutes, you're just facing these people. And, there were two of them and they were I think soldiers I think they just grabbed them from the army to do these things there was a boy and a girl and the girl stuck to the few deep in my nose and but she was not looking at me uh, she was looking at you and she took the cutie part and she was she was pointing with it uh, at the queue and she said to the guy see this woman see this woman I bet you she had a nose job I bet you she had a nose job so I turned around to see what was going on because obviously I'm involved now and I said how can you see her nose everybody's wearing masks and she said oh no it's a flight from from Istanbul, they've all had their noses done and their breasts and their husbands had hair implants. And I was I was kind of startled that they said, oh, oh I, I came from London. Like, I didn't want to be a part of that crowd. And then she did <laughs> look at my nose and she said, figures. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's left us with quite a bit to think about, <laughs> not just whether you've been queuing up for COVID tests, wondering about people's implants. So we always like to find out how things are going by asking, what's the matter, Bubbler? Mike, what's going on with you at the moment? Life's good. I'm not sure if my complaints will seem... Uh... There's like motorcycle guys that go up the road. That's that's my biggest complaint is it sounds like a 747 taking off because I'm on a hill and they have to like really torque it. That's just a petty. Well, oh, that's your biggest problem is the but these guys, some of them don't know what they're doing and the and the engine backfires and it sounds like gunfire. So it's either a 747 taking off within 10 feet of the flat or gunfire in a 747 making a getaway. And it's uh, they just love this street for some reason. And it's just Do you know that's what? my big gripe. I totally feel you because 
we moved house not long ago and we now live in a like a very busy intersection with a little mini roundabout literally outside our door where there's a loose manhole cover on the road and every time any vehicle goes over that at a particular angle it makes like a clanking noise in the day you don't really mm. notice it but our bedroom's the front of the house that noise disturbs me every time a car goes by you're sort of you're tensing in case the noise is going to come i don't think it's petty either I think it's a very valid complaint to make. Why are they on your street? Do they live in your street or is it a cut through? It's quiet enough where they can achieve light speed without hitting something else. And to them, it looks like just a big raceway or an or a landing strip. There's no lights. There's no stop signs. There are no speed bumps. So I think they see nothing but opportunity. And man, they let it rip. You know, and it's dangerous. Aside from the noise... And it's the same with my problem because, like, yeah. one day I'm going to go out and punch somebody from that noise. Someone is also going to get clobbered. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that's what he meant when he says someone's going to get clobbered. I assumed you meant you were getting, they were going to hit a pedestrian. Or did... <laughs> they were going to hit a pedestrian, although there was one guy, I gave him the finger to slow him down. I, if I went like this, hey, slow down, he would just whiz by. So I gave him the finger, and, of course, he hung a Yui, and we had birds. I don't think it changed anything, but at least I got to see who I'm dealing with and tell him it's too dangerous. Right. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about the antisocial behavior. I'm trying to say look you're going to take someone's life and go to jail why don't you why don't you drop it down to like something that where we can see you and you're not just a, a colorful blur sometimes making yourself like an ally to these people does help if i see people parked in a disabled bay and i want to have a go at them because they're not disabled obviously if they're disabled it's fine but they don't have a disabled badge instead of telling them off if you kind of make yourself like an ally by saying oh i'd be careful i got a ticket there last week they feel that you're one of them so maybe telling them oh you know i got done for speeding on this road or noise pollution or whatever i murdered someone <laughs> that's <laughs> an extreme <laughs> we could try all of those methods and whilst we think of that Daphna let's find out how things are going with you at the moment what's the matter Bubbler? Okay, I'll tell you what's the matter. I'll tell you what's the matter. I'm menopausal. Now, <laughs> I, I thought the whole menopause thing was about not having your period and getting wrinkles. Uh, and nobody said about the brain and the rage. And so basically, this is what I'm having. Stupid and angry all the time. And while I'm at that, I'm also obviously trying to reinvent myself because I'm having a midlife crisis. But because of that, I'm trying to do a new thing. So I'm, I'm working on a PhD. Doing this without a brain is just really, really difficult. So yeah, I'm struggling, basically. It's, it's a tough time. Is it like generalized rage about everything or are there particular things you're angry about? Sometimes with concentration, it's hard for me to decide whether this is because of COVID. I had long COVID uh, or is it because of menopause or is it because of diabetes? And with the rage, it's hard to say, is it because I'm Israeli? Is it because I'm specifically <laughs> cantankerous, or is it because people are just annoying? I mean, this already sounds like the most Jewish thing that's happened to you this week because you, you've got these issues and the list of reasons is just so long it could be the menopause it could be diabetes this is just a very long list of yeah, could be Boris being Jewish <laughs> also I love the word cantankerous once I was uh, I was doing one show I think it was killing Miss D and I was trying to define her in the blurb and my friends are really helpful on Facebook that way and that's how I learned the word rambunctious. Rambunctious. Good word, right? And then Steve Bennett, the reviewer, he taught me a word, rusk. That's what he called me. He called you rusk. 
He caught the first review of me, he called me Brass. I was really proud of it because I got a joke out of it. I was saying <laughs> I had to Google it before I could get properly offended. Very good. <laughs> I remember a, somebody on Facebook explained it to me because obviously I, I've taken to Facebook to find out what it meant before Google. And somebody said, it's basically like an angry fishmonger in Hastings. <laughs> That's so specific. <laughs> Very specific. Yeah, I think it was from Hastings. What street like, in Hastings? things <laughs> just on the court i mean years later i went to hastings on the day of brexit so it was like the board was thursday night and i went for the festival on friday to do my show about immigration and hastings was 55 which was the uh the angry fishmongers uh obviously and then 45 who was uh poncy londoners who went and bought airbnbs there there's a title in there the angry fishmonger of hastings it sounds like a perfect <laughs> short film like an indie it's like the bookseller of Kabul and all this kind of yeah. Uh, the angry fishmonger of Hastings does sound like it was written by Julia Donaldson or Chaucer. <laughs> I'm always curious to hear everybody's memories connected to Jewish food. Mike, what about you? Have you got a particular food memory or something that's happened with Jews and food? I did this in my show that you kindly had me in for for the festival. And I talked about my Jewish grandmother who didn't cook, which is not heard of. Everybody usually associates the Jewish grandmother with cooking. And she was kind of a lazy cook. She was loving in every other way, but not big on cooking. But she had an affinity for the Pillsbury Doughboy. Was that known here, that little doughboy? Oh boy. Do you know what? It was known because of the film Ghostbusters. That no, was the, the Stay, Puff, Stay Puff Marshmallow guy. Oh, Stay Puff Marshmallow. That... <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's absolutely known in Britain, but apparently not by Ra- me. Rachel knew of it because she inaccurately identified right. the Marshmallow Man, but no one else. We heard of it, I think, because of American media yeah. is what Rachel was trying to say, but I love her answer. <laughs> I really tried to participate. The Doughboy was on TV a lot on commercials. He was a walking, talking little piece of dough with eyes and a chef's hat. And he would giggle whenever the people in the commercial would poke him in the tummy <laughs> like that. And my grandmother would giggle every time he got poked. And I told the story on stage about meeting somebody from the Pillsbury Dough Corporation on an airplane and them giving a toy Doughboy to me to give to my grandmother and just her loving the doll. And it a, it's a sweet story and it doesn't do it justice to tell it here. But uh, I love talking about it on stage because in America, they all know the Doughboy and they're also mortified at the thought of a Jewish grandmother who doesn't cook so they want where's this going who is this person why should we care and it's a fun story to do and it's a truth story as we appreciate on stage did people judge your grandma like in your family for the lack of food preparation it was kind of funny to see like in the kitchen the the jars and the boxes and the things that would make that would ultimately lead to you getting filled up but it was like jars and boxes you know go filter fish a box of this some crackers or a package of that but it wasn't like oh the she's whipping up the the soup you can mm, the bro- the bro- you know there was none of that i really respect your grandmother for that because she didn't try and blag it she didn't make out that she was cooking everything from fresh making all the noises in the kitchen as if she was spending more time with you as a family by not shackling herself to the kitchen that's a good point thank you a take on that no i like it i like i like the spin that's fantastic obviously rachel and i are massively judging now (laughs) people have mixed feelings about gefilte fish but gefilte fish from a jar I mean, I don't even think I have the words. I think if, if I tried to describe an abomination, that's a good way of saying it. How an, does an it? I still don't know if it comes any other way, Rachel. I wouldn't know. How would you get it if it's not 
from a jar? Where does it come yeah. from? From you fish. Had swimming in the bathtub for a week, and then your nan, just on the morning of Passover Eve, she takes uh, and she bits it over the head, and then she takes it outside to the sink in the yard, and she has her way with it. Why do you want to eat food from your grandma who's not bathed for a week? Exactly. <laughs> That's disgusting. Yeah. They had to put the carp in water for a week because carp live low down in the muddy part of the river or the stream or whatever. So so that they wouldn't have like that muddy taste, they would swim in either... If you had a bit one of those big butler sinks, then they would be in there. And if not, in your bathtub because the food is more important than anything else. Your showers... I don't know if they had showers, but yeah, my yeah, dad remembers... Sure. Cops in the bathtub. Bite a week in advance because otherwise somebody else might go to the fishmonger and buy the best. Yeah. And then... Yeah. So you had a pet. You weren't allowed to name it because, you know, don't name pets you're going to eat. Yeah. But now, how you make it is you go to a fishmonger, you get ground white fish and you mix onion and matzo meal and egg and sugar and salt and the quantities depending on where your family came from in which part of Eastern Europe. And you roll it into balls and you boil it in sort of salty sweet water with carrot and with onion. Onion. Mm. And now, Daphne, you're going to argue with me about the recipe. I'm not because I don't make it. I can't like only the my grandmother's one I could have, and even that only if it was covered in a mountain of sand. So I've not had any since my grandmother died. Uh, yeah. I make my other grandmother's fish, which is chaime. That's Tunisian fish, or more like the Moroccan version of it. Is that the one with all the peppers? Yeah, one with all the peppers and the tomato juice, and it's quite spicy. Uh, Guys, you can just leave us now. Yeah, <laughs> tahini on top of it. It's really nice. I have never had gefilte fish, and nothing in this conversation is making me want to change that. By the way, I just purchased this very week hrein, which is horseradish and beetroot sauce, which uh-huh. says on it, triple strength. I'm very excited mm-hmm. about that. That I've sounds good. It was kind of reasonable, but... The truth is with Hrein that you need to get the root itself. This is also yeah. a chemical weapon. I once raided it in the kitchen of my friend Ilana's here in Acton, and the girls came up from their bedroom crying. I mean, I was doing it with one of these snorkeling masks on. It's just <laughs> unbelievable. But then after like two, three nights in the fridge, it kind of loses yeah. its bite. That's yeah. it. It does. It loses the potency. I love it. Um, across the whole of Passover, I mix horseradish into all kinds of things. I think it's amazing. And it clears your sinuses what more could you want from a dish I, I feel I like just, I need to make gefilte fish and like ship it to Mike and Philip. I mean, I don't really need to ship it to Philip. He lives 15 minutes away. I could just. No, but I, I've actually, I've moved. Let me give you my new address. <laughs> <laughs> Is it uh, one Yemen road, Yemen? Oh, you, you've, you've, you've been London, there. Uh, that you're both, uh, both there. You know where I am. You know where I, I am. I'm, I'm now in Hastings. Oh, <laughs> I? Um, I wanted to just say something about that. Do you remember my show, Chicken Soup Crusader? I do. Uh, so I had that show, it was, I think, 2017. And the back of the flyer, so the front of the flyer was my picture and the title and everything. And I didn't know what to put on the back of the flyer, so I put my grandmother's chicken soup recipe. And so it was like a bit like a gift to the audience. And I you say to them, just stick it on your fridge and make it when you're sick. And in my fantasy, I had like hundreds of people tweeting back at me, thanking me for the wonderful recipe. And this <laughs> never, never happens. I was a little bit disappointed. 
But what I love about this recipe is because a lot of my comedian friends remember it. So every once in so often, they would just mention it on Facebook and they were like, oh, I need the recipe. And then I would just post the back of my flyer from uh, 2017. So that's yeah. good enough. But the thing I'm most proud of about this recipe is that it says, put some Knorr cube in. And if people ask, say you didn't. This is like my recommendation. You can put, because people always say, oh, we don't put any whatever to kind of stop. And I'm like, right. yes, it is. What could be more Jewish than interrupting our own show to remind you that back episodes of the podcast are available on all of the usual platforms, as well as our website, jewtalkingtome.com. And as well as catching up on things you've missed, why not be the first in line to hear all future episodes by subscribing to our Patreon? For just a small monthly donation, you'll get exclusive access to free gifts, bonus footage, live events, and much, much more. This is your chance to support the podcast in return for which we'll keep doing what we've been doing, as well as putting out extra content just for you to find out more just go to patreon.com forward slash jew talking without the g go on it's what your mother would want and now back to the show i would just like to make it publicly known that never in my life have i added a stock cube or stock powder to my chicken soup my grandmother used to say when they say this to you say me neither i would like to say I would like to say that having tasted Rachel's chicken soup, I can say that makes sense now. <laughs> They're such a bad friend. I love the beard. And Thank I you. Yes, this, this beard is a result of lockdown where what I've learned is the number of people that like this does suggest that more people prefer less of my face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is well, Jewish. Like, you always find a way to get offended. <laughs> I don't always find a way to get offended. Why would you say that? <laughs> uh, good. We've had now quite an in-depth conversation about food, predominantly <laughs> with Daphne, but we're talking about chicken soup. And I was just thinking about Mike growing up with a grandma who didn't make him chicken soup and i feel very sad about that somehow presumably you had tins of chicken soup yeah, yeah right that's not, <laughs> that's not chicken soup though did, did your mum make it right my mom made all this great stuff i don't know where she learned it i mean she right. clearly you know on the job training as a mom but uh uh, my grandma, you know, do you think was... that growing up, all of your mom's friends were out drinking, doing, taking cigarettes, whatever, and she was out learning how to make gefilte fish and chicken soup? <laughs> Absolutely, that your yeah. grandma finding out that's probably what happened for me. This is the first time that I've heard anybody say, My mom cannot cook to save her life, or my nan cannot cook to save her life, was in the UK. I never heard anybody ever say that in Israel. When I was growing up, our neighbor was cooking terribly and her kids liked her food. And my mom used to say, everybody likes their mother's food. And I treated that as a complete truism until I came to the UK yeah. and people were like, oh, yeah. I'm going home for Christmas. My mom's food is terrible. And I was like, oh. I never felt so sorry for anybody. It's hard to be like the most terrible way to grow up. Yeah, I can't no, even no. bear the thought. And actually, my mum is a fantastic cook. Both my grandmothers were. And also, my mother-in-law was a great cook. She doesn't cook much now. But the one thing you never had to worry about when you went to anyone's house was what the food was going to be like. It's interesting how food always takes us back to our grandmothers. And my grandmother was, she really was an amazing cook. She was Polish. But when she was married, my grandfather was Ukrainian. They have taken her to his auntie's house and she converted her uh, into Ukrainian cuisine. <laughs> now, this 
sounds like a sad and not very feminist story, but culinarily, it really is the right way to go because the Ukrainians are more into a lot of pepper and sugar and they're like, they're really, the food is fantastic. And in the last few years, you know, whenever both my grandmothers, the other one is Syrian, also was making great food, come visit me in the kitchen when I cook for Christmas to tell me off for doing Christmas and for doing the, not really turning the meatballs at the right time and, uh, <laughs> you know, putting coriander instead of parsley in the tahini. I just think how much what you cook, what you feed people is really, it could be what remains of you. And it's not a small thing. Because I always, mm. you know, I just turned 50 uh, recently, not recently, but a year and a half ago. And I started thinking, like, what is my trajectory? I don't have children. I've not, I've only written one book. You know, all this kind of stuff. You know, I tell jokes, they come and go, who will remember? And I was thinking, people will remember what I cook for them. And people will have my flyer from 2017 attached to their <laughs> Would I have to go to the house and put it on my fridge myself? On Fridge myself. <laughs> I think you're looking at my grandmother standing in the kitchen, the way she was rolling the dough for Kreplach. She had these fat the palms of her hands were massive and she would just take the rolling and just go and it all would be straight and then she would kind of and I used to kind of mess things up and she would tell me off but these times in her kitchen this is the most cliche Jewish thing to say isn't it but I do cherish them I do remember them that's gorgeous I miss the way that she would put them on the hob and go do something else outside and come back and they would still not burn somehow and that scent from the kitchen yeah I'm kind of I'm more romantic about that. Even though at the same time, I have this sort of cynicism about this whole genre of um, turmeric books, as I call them. You know, all these people always talk about how everything smells of this and of that. When I was meeting publishers here, after I've done my book about The Guardian, which was a very non-fiction book, everybody was expecting me to do one of these very homey kind of the scent of exoticism, my grandmother's rice kind of book. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm a political correspondent. I want to write about history, whatever. But now there's so much on my mind and on my memory that uh, maybe now that I'm old and stupid, I will, I might do that. (laughs) I felt obliged to clarify that my mom cooked constantly. My grandmother did not, but I, something sweet happened recently. My great grandmother's from England. She was born and raised here and then got married and went to the States. I still use my great grandmother's recipe for herosis. And I mentioned to my mom recently that the recipe is using apples from England now as it was a hundred something years ago. And we we both just marveled at that, at, at how things turned out. You know, the recipe I use now, I'm using apples from England and it would probably taste exactly as it would have, uh, with granny's recipe. And we thought that was really kind of fun and sweet. It's amazing how flavors come with you through the generations. We know that Jews love abrogus and the classic one which we've already mentioned today is whether Jews say bagel or whether they incorrectly say bagel. So <sighs> we'd like to hear what your favorite feuds are in your lives. Daphna, is there anything that's happened that you would like to share with us? 
Okay, first of all, I want to say that in Hebrew we say begale, or even begale, because we're not very good with the bay thing. But feuds, I mean, look, as I said before, I am a menopausal woman. A day in which three people did not block me on Facebook before I get out of bed is a <laughs> And I don't even remember, like, my most frequent question over the last few months is, I would ask a friend, do you remember why I block her on Facebook? Like, what did they fight with her about? I suddenly see people on Facebook and they cannot see their names you know and I'm like hmm I remember mm. that it was a thing but I don't remember what was that thing and sometimes I would send a picture I would just secretly take a photo of somebody at the gig and I would send over to my best friend Gary who's much younger than me and I would say who's that guy and why do I hate him <laughs> so yeah this is what my life is like there's a lot of fighting and normally I don't remember why I was slightly anxious that you were going to say with me because I what? remembered just when you were talking that I borrowed a book from you before lockdown and I've not given it back and now it's been about two and a half years and I read it in about two days so uh, I will drop that back because I don't want to become the subject of a breakup. <laughs> Years before I was with a puzzle, so I had no excuse. I was living in my flat in Jerusalem and I had two sofas standing in an L shape. And I told my brother in passing that if he wants one of them, he can take it or something. And then I came back from work in the newspaper and I went for a nap. And I woke up as I always used to and I sat on my sofa and I was watching television, just waiting to go to the pub at midnight, which is what you do in Jerusalem. And then suddenly my brother calls me and he says, don't worry, nobody broke into your house. I've taken the sofa. And I was like, oh, what sofa? I'm sitting on the sofa. And he was like, the other sofa, you idiot, which he took and I didn't even notice. So if you took a book from me and you didn't bring it back, there is hardly any chance that I'm ever going to remember unless I actually need it. So uh, there you go. But come have chicken soup. We'll make something to eat and bring back that book. <laughs> that would be delightful. I'm delighted there's no Bruegus to stem from that. To be fair, Rachel, you do have enough books on your bookshelf behind you. I don't think you need to be borrowing anyone else's. Bruegus, this is how we say that. Rachel's a sweetheart. I mean, honestly, she, she got me into a lot of trouble. In her time. Do you remember when you put me in this uh, Jewish comedian WhatsApp group that I was yes. rejected? You weren't rejected oh, from it. You chose to leave. That and that's a funny fine. bit. I was like, I'm going to leave now. And then I didn't know how to technically leave a WhatsApp group. And I just had to come back and say, could you please throw me out? Yeah, uh, she, but... she sent me a message saying, can yeah. you erase me from the group? <laughs> and then it, then what's weird about that is then it makes it look like I've thrown her out. Not she, It sort of ruined it, your it, flouncing. You know, if you were in a room having a fight with someone and you wanted to storm out and slam the door, but you had to say to them, yes, yeah, so I'm just going to wait here. Would you mind lifting me <laughs> up? But that's exactly what I did. It wasn't a private message i went in the group and they said okay i was going to live in a half but i just don't know how to leave and they were like, okay i'll send you out it's fine right yeah i mean that group could be the most jewish thing of any of our weeks who who's still in it because there's always someone coming someone leaving because we're very easily offendable yeah i'm really not saying this is a complaint it was a bit of an understanding that i was trying to kind of forge as to what am i in this context like when i came to the uk it was very clear to me that i am not a british Jew. Obviously, it's clear to me now, even though I am Jewish and British, but there was something about what was going on there that has nothing to do with the political bit that we were arguing over. That actually, the penny really dropped there. 
I totally get it now. I know that I'm not a British Jew and I will never uh, try to pretend to be one again. But uh, nobody said, don't look so sad. But they said, this is the thing with your eyes. You look like my heart goes out. Uh, but it's the truth. And I think it was a very, very interesting and useful dialogue in, in that sense. So thank you for all the time in which you've been bringing me in to start. Oh, I think you're very welcome. And Philip, too, Philip was, uh, I remember when you booked me for Jurama. And I remember mm. thinking, I wonder if they'll ask me because maybe I'm not Jewish enough. And it was always a pleasure. It was a pleasure to have you there as well. So, Mike, how about you? Is there a Bruegus that you'd like to share with us? No, I, I actually was overcome with a sense of gratitude listening to how uh, Daphne wrapped things up. And I was going to say, being an Italian-American Jewish comic in England, it's hard for me to get a toehold. You know, like I had three decades in in America before coming here. And now it's like I have to convince people. They're like, I'm sorry, so we got an email from a Mike Capazzola who wants to perform at the synagogue. And then, you know, it took a little while to get things going. So just being uh, asked to do the festival was an honor and uh, and a treat. You're talking to, uh, about the Sitsit Festival. Talking about the festival. Yeah, your festival. That it, it felt uh, like validation. Like, finally, someone's not questioning if I'm funny enough or Jewish enough. It was a nice uh, turning point. It felt, it felt good. It felt like validated. It only took uh, four years. But, you know, you can imagine <laughs> what it's like if I'm sending an email. Hey, I'm Mike Capazzola. I'm an Italian-American Jewish comic living in London. And they're like, whatever. Maybe you should it, go Kapazolovich. Yeah, Kaplan. <laughs> I could change it to Kaplan. It does seem to be that being a comedian is one of the only professions where people can kind of go, well, I've never heard of you. That your back catalogue of work has no bearing on whether they'll book right. you for something. It has to be whether they've known you. So we could be in with a particular club. They change. Mm -hmm booker and suddenly you're back to either doing open spots or even being ignored i can imagine coming over with 10 20 30 years under your belt to then be met with well, I've never heard yeah of you. yeah it wouldn't happen with a surgeon where they're like you know we could use an orderly or maybe somebody work the front desk and then we'll have you work your way up to surgeon uh, after a couple <laughs> you know it's, it's not it doesn't work the way you're right philip that's a great analogy with the new booker well i've never heard of you like it's it it's is like really when my um when my dad once introduced me to somebody and he said, this is my son, the budding actor. And I was like, dad, I did drama school. I've yeah. worked professionally on television, in film, theater. I think I'm beyond budding. I appreciate I'm not famous. I'm not right. working constantly. But, but working is successful. Working if you're working, that's, and that's successful. But it was the budding. So yes, it's those kinds of things. Maybe that's a broigus we can all have as the people that don't recognise our past as being yeah. good enough if they haven't seen the evidence for themselves. What's the next stage after budding? Is it blossoming? Emerging. 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 Yeah, I hate the word emerging because when people use it, emerging playwright emerging actor emerging comedian it's virtually always somebody who's got loads of experience but you've only just heard of them all the things that you can apply for as an emerging playwright or director yeah. for example they want you to have like x amount of experience and then they emerge you they want to be the one that discovered you that's the they thing claim they, you. Yeah. they claim you yeah absolutely i remember when fabulous jewish actress samantha spiro won the comedy newcomer award at the comedy awards many years ago and in mm. her speech she said something like oh newcomer i've been doing this 10 years and it was so relevant because she wasn't a newcomer it's just we've only just started taking notice of you she'd been doing yeah. amazing work up until that point even high profile work but they just hadn't bothered so yeah they want to emerge us they want to take us from budding to superstar and they get to take the credit i don't mind being made a superstar like you can have the credit <laughs> 
of the things about being older is that people assume that you've been doing this for a very, very long time. I mean, I started when I was 40, and when I was 41, people were like, oh, you must have been around for a long time. And sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's not. I mean, this read somebody on the London newspaper website basically referred to my show in Edinburgh. They were recommending the show, which was nice. And they called me a fringe veteran. And I was wondering, what is a fringe veteran? Because it sounds a little bit like a compliment, like I've been around for a long time. But also it sounds a little bit like somebody who's been knocking around forever, but has not been on telly yet. Um, (laughs) And I was thinking, I'm Jewish, I'm going to take this as an insult. It's like when I had to take my computer to the shop to be fixed and the guy at Apple said, well, the problem is yours is a vintage machine. I was like, vintage? It's five years old. I know what you mean. But I just wanted to say, there's also a thing about how we try to shoehorn ourselves into identity that never really bothered us before. So like, if there's a gig, I would suddenly be way more Jewish than I normally am. I was actually trying to convince a promoter a few years ago that I was Arab in the sense that he could book me to the Arabs are not funny gig because my grandmother is Syrian and uh, I'm actually quite popular in Palestinian circles because of my human rights work. But obviously I'm not, I mean, there was no way that he could uh, and at the same time, we would have like comedians who maybe are Muslim, but are not Arab at all. So Roger Isaac has a gig of immigrants and he's really, really trying to keep it immigranty, like in first generation immigrants, which is the material that I'm writing about. But I think as the fringe goes on, which is about four, four and a half weeks, uh, you have to like, kind of lower your standards a little bit in who you invite on the shows. If you're doing a niche show like Jewarama was for Jewish comedians, we always had a non-Jew as well, just to balance it for fun but I did the Irish showcase a couple of times because in the first week they're like right it's all Irish comedians second week people are dropping out because they're a bit tired <laughs> or have gone home so they need a few more people who made people their second of Irish generation. heritage yeah, yeah and, and then by, it, yeah. by week four I was just in the pub drinking a Guinness and they're like do you want five minutes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I've, done, you know, I've done actually loads of the Irish gigs that was the best of the Irish and also yeah. stuff like that and I always felt like I had to kind of explain my accent and I would be like, uh, this is South Cork uh, or something like that. But they were like, so welcome. They didn't really care if you were Irish or not. I always loved doing this gig because it was a very inclusive sense of that. It was in a way the opposite of the way the Jewish religion is kind of structured. That is like, we're not missionary. You don't need to join. Please don't try. It's all fine. So we all have lots of connections with each other. We're all Jews, we're all obsessed with foods. But uh, if we think about the idea of six degrees of can't eat bacon, Mike, who's your most interesting personal Jewish connection? It's uh, kind of a tale of Besheret, and it's not so much a person as a group. Okay. But um, years ago, uh, I was at my friend's house, the girl I went to college with. This would, I would have been like 21, 22 or something like that. And I said, can I borrow a piece of paper? I have an idea for a joke. And she threw me this pad and I wrote down the joke. And then I looked at the pad and I, I can't read Hebrew, but I noticed it had these dogs on it and some Hebrew lettering. And I said, Amy, what does this say? And she said, it's the Israel Guide Dog Center for the Blind. And I said, can I keep the pad? Our first dog was a seeing eye dog who had an arthritic leg and couldn't support the harness. And uh, I'd love to send the pad to my mom. She loves dogs and she's uh, she would get a kick out of this. And said, yeah, I got a million of them. I said, why do you have a million of these pads? And she said, my dad helped found the 
the guide dog center in Israel. I, oh, that's terrific. And I mailed the pad to my mom in New York and she did a little research and wrote a check, a little small donation and sent it to the Israel guide dog center. It's in Beethoven, if I'm saying it right in Israel, Beethoven. And she got a letter in the mail saying, is this the same Linda Capazola who was my ESL, English as a second language teacher back in the 80s? So one of her students that she had taught English to, he had come to America right after the army to learn English in order to help in the world get the infrastructure of the Israel Guide Dog Center up and running. So this, her former student, this kid was now all grown up and a partner with my friend Amy's dad at the Israel Guide Dog Center. I just couldn't get my head around it. I thought it was, I mean, if I hadn't asked Amy or if, or if she had thrown me like the receipt from buying something at the supermarket instead of the pad. And I visit the center whenever I'm in Israel. My mom is uh, in touch with her former student. Like he's all grown up now with kids of his own. It's very sweet. It's just, I found it very mind blowing. I've always loved coincidence. I think we all, you know, those moments where you, what? That's great. But I think that's pretty Bashariat. And I don't know if it's six degrees, five, eight, one, but it was very funny to me that it played out that way. And and, um, and they're a marvelous center. It's obviously apolitical. They just raise and train guide dogs for blind Israelis. Like, I feel like it's a cause everyone can get on board with. And um, that is the six degrees. I love that story. I think it's cool. First of all, it's the first time like an institution has been your most uh, impressive Jewish connection. But the idea of all those coincidences is incredible. And, and also just some silly joke. Whatever I was you writing. remember the joke? I do. I'm not going to get in. To it. it was just something stupid about a trend of something that was going on in movies. This was a joke, like something I would have written at age 22. It's not funny, but the, how small the joke was compared to the enormity of this loving turn of events involving cute dogs, a former student. And your own dog. Yes. And, and the happenstance of my mom getting the pad, taking the time to research IGDC.IL, you know, that yeah. finding the website. What is this all about? It's got Hebrew. Her Hebrew's not great. I think she can't read it without vowels. So for her to research, like Israel Guide dog center for the blind oh bless them and wrote them a check you know it took the time and it just all the sequence this consequence of each small action leading to a reunion of someone who was her student she taught at night you know when we were kids so uh yeah also the person then getting in touch that's yeah. a lovely story and philip also but it's i think it's you wouldn't know from another country like is this the same linda capazola from new rochelle new york like you could also ask is the same linda capazola from the western hemisphere and it would still be the same like, <laughs> Is this the same Linda Capazola from New Rochelle, New York, who was my English teacher in 1980? Is this the same Linda Capazola whose mom only made her chicken soup out of a can? (laughs) We've heard about that all the way over in Israel. (laughs) The legend is true. (laughs) That's an amazing story. Thanks, Mike. I really Mm -hmm. enjoy that, actually. And it's it's very gentle in quite a harsh world, that story. I knew it at the time that it was magical yeah. in the middle of a crazy world. And wouldn't it be a great film? Maybe. I'm Make still in it. touch with them. They're they're great guys. I, I visit the center, like I said. You know, if you want to see something cute next time you're in Israel, go to the center. Like, I promise you, nothing is better than like 300 yellow Labrador puppies. Can you picture that? I mean, that's like porn to me. Yeah, they're, they're so beautiful. These dogs are so beautiful. Rachel, I'd be careful because there probably is a search for that. Um, <laughs> Where you said it's in Betelved. Where is that in in the great scheme of things in Israel? Where I know how to get there by train from Tel Aviv. It might be in the north. It might be towards Herzliya. Like Herzliya might be a stop after that, heading towards. Daphne's definitely Googling it now. I I feel it in my mind. I have no idea where it is. Whatever train you would take to like Haifa Carmel, like it's on the way that that way. Okay. You just listen out from the train for the barking. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) Daphne, what about you? What's your most interesting personal Jewish connection? Okay, so first of all, obviously it's weird because I'm coming from a country that is 
was mostly Jewish, so uh, most of my connections growing up were Jewish, technically. But I always talk about one person that I actually met in the UK. A few years ago, when I was the director of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions UK branch, I went and did a combined thing on Greenbelt Festival which, uh, if you don't know it, it's a bit of a christian hippie type of uh, event. And I came straight from Edinburgh. I flew in, just, it was just the end of the festival. And then I was on a panel about something that had to do with anti-Semitism. And uh, with me on the panel, I saw, was sitting a very orthodox Haredi man, like a rabbi type, you know, with a black hat and a big beard and everything. Rabbi Herschel Block. And I was registering to myself that this is probably going to be my arch rival. And as things are, I don't know if you've heard of Rabbi Herschel, but we ended up basically being the closest allies uh, in this discussion. He's a very, very interesting man. He founded Hashomrim, which is kind of a self-defense organization for the Jews in Stamford Hill. And he is quite a lefty man. Very, very interesting. And then we took the train back to London together. We were chatting all the way. He has a bakery and his family have been bakers since they immigrated from Germany like 100 years ago. Oh, yeah, we follow each other on uh, Facebook, we're friends on Facebook, and I was super impressed by the things that I have seen him post during COVID, because as you might remember, Stamford Hill, uh, generally the Haredi community was really, really badly hit, like any other very, very crowded community where COVID was spreading really fast. And he kept posting these almost like sermons every Sunday, basically stressing the idea of like you should really keep yourself safe and you should look out for others. It was before the vaccine even, but like wear your mask, keep your distance. And he was writing with so much pain and passion that I thought was fantastic. And that's how I felt like I made, you know, a, a friend of somebody who seems to be so remote and, and distant in the Jewish world from me. That's a gorgeous story too. What a lovely personal stories. Yeah, I love stories. I think stories are the best, aren't they? It's nice because I think we worried when we started asking this question to people that each time it would be oh I did a gig with this person I did a gig with that person and those are two really lovely stories that show the way connections work and are so important to us thank you I did a gig with Seinfeld neither did I can you get them on the show I mean how was it Um, also don't put two Jews in one show it's a bit more like you know it's like you know when we were starting out Rachel when they used to say oh we can't we already have one woman on Yeah. so you know maybe Jews are the same well as Rachel and I have spoken about on our Patreon videos recently both of us have done gigs with multiple Jews lately that were not Jewish gigs last night Rachel's was actually in a church and more recently mine was in West Wales and all of the acts with the exception of the compare were Jewish coincidentally they weren't the original lineup there were a couple of replacements I think from COVID illnesses but the audience were very happy with us being Jewish and we talked about being Jewish how did you know because I'm kind of wondering whether I gave with all sorts of Jews that I didn't even know and like, did everybody speak about being Jewish like as a thing we all referenced it but that's because we suggested that we would do that backstage anyway so I think because we all knew each other last night uh, in the church one of the acts is someone who doesn't particularly reference their Jewishness just now and then one does occasionally and then I'm like fully on brand 24 hours a day seven days a week so there was sort of a lovely arc of Jewishness in that lineup and then there were three other acts who weren't as far as I know, but I have to say I didn't ask to see any certification. So now when we talk about the arc of Jewishness, 
That's a beautiful phrase. Uh, I think there's loads of lovely phrases and words in Hebrew or Yiddish or the Jewish languages that we use generally. So we've introduced a section called Duolingo, where we'd love to know if you have any favorite words or phrases that might make you chuckle. Mike, how about you? I love Bruges as a start. If I'm going to get a dog, I want to name the dog Bruges. I think it's just the greatest <laughs> name for a dog. I want uh, I want a brown lab retriever and I'm going to name the dog Bruges or I like Barney also, but um, Spilkus. <laughs> I've always loved Spilkus. Spilkus I love Spilkus. Yeah. Spilkus. What does that mean? I don't think I've even know what that means. It's like an illness, you know, under the weather, right? I got the Spilkus. Oh, oh that's not how we use it at all. Yeah, how do you use it? Like. Spilkus is like on tenter, so like when you're waiting for something to happen and right. you're on edge. Right, got the Spilkus. Yeah. It's funny how it gets laundered through through families yeah. and misused. Like, you know, yeah. are you okay? You feel a little spilkus? Vildemensch. Oh my God, I love that word. I remember someone's Yiddish grandmother, who was a Holocaust survivor, me coming over for dinner, like, oh, you brought the Vildemensch, the wild man. The, <laughs> the wild man, yeah. Yeah. That's oh, a great you brought word. the Vildemensch. It's funny that you want to call your dog Bruges because one of the big Bruges in my family at the moment is over what we would name a dog if we got one, because I'm desperate for a dog. But I would like to called our dog should we have one the name we would have given to a daughter if we'd had one right because we've only got sons so i would like to call our future dog but sheva which was the uh, name that we would have given yeah. a daughter no one else is going for that for any number of reasons also because they think that calling the dog in the street people will think it's all kinds of other words which it isn't some of which might be a bit rude there's quite heated uh views on that particular subject in this house i i think but sheva's okay we had a dog called butt sniffer yeah. <laughs> the thing about naming your dog is you have to think what is it okay to shout out in public when i've lost it so mm. you remember there was a video years ago of the dog it was on a rampage in richmond park and around the, the day shouting out benson benson yeah so would you be happy in a park shouting out broigus broigus <laughs> Daphne, do you have other words or phrases that you love in your language? Yeah, I have a few. Okay, so first of all, I was just trying to think about Yiddish. Uh, my grandmother used to say, and I've, I've noticed them using this term more, more recently, nearly dead. You know, like in Princess Bride, it's like somebody used to just like more than one foot in the grave. Uh, she <laughs> had some great, this way, another one of hers that I've been using quite often is which means we'll finish that way already. Basically, this means if I've not learned to swim by now, you know, it doesn't matter. We'll, oh, I've not, not seen that film, I've not read that classic. And I've noticed that ever since I turned 50, I say that a lot. Another one is, this is something between Hebrew and English. I've noticed that there are some phrases and words that just do not exist in Hebrew because we just don't need them. Like, Awkward. <laughs> yeah. We just do a hat. This whole notion of you might go to a party and bump into your like we just we just go. I mean, if we fight there, we'll fight there. So <laughs> all this kind of tidy awkwardness, but at the same time, there's a Hebrew word kombina, which is actually also I think used in Yiddish. It's like it basically means a will deal kind of thing. Like mm. you know, you will sell me your car that your brother, but I will not pay you the full sum. 
And I've noticed that uh, not only the word, but the whole concept is kind of frowned upon in British. Uh, so I always find these kind of things about how language works and what words are just redundant in a specific language, not because the word just happened to not be there, but because the whole concept, the whole behavior, the whole kind of mental knowledge, uh, notion just does not exist. Yeah, that's definitely true. I was trying to think what it is, but there's, there is a Hebrew word. It isn't balagan, but it is that sort of a word that sometimes, yeah. I mean, because balagan, I guess you could say, well maybe that's a good word um, like it's just um everything's very chaotic but sometimes in another language and for us that might be hebrew or yiddish you can uh, succinctly explain a situation in one word that you'd need like five english words to really get to the root of i mean i'm a translator and i translate now back and forth so i translate both into english and into hebrew and hebrew is two-thirds the length both because we have less letters in the alphabet but also we don't have all these prepositions and things and, and a lot of words are kind of clanged together. So basically it pays way better because they pay you by the word. It pays way better to translate into English. That is really interesting. I'd have never thought about that. Also, I wonder what it's like writing comedy in Hebrew, which I don't do in that sense because i think your 10 minutes would shrink possibly into five uh, or into mm. seven if you translate it it's just way more it's punchier well that's nearly all we've got time for but how will our audience know what you're up to if you never call you don't write normally we'd allocate 20 seconds to do this but for you 30 Mike, where can our audience find you? We've got a bunch of shows coming up. Some of them are in England, some of them are out of the country, but it's all on the website if you, if you can spell Capazola correctly. So it's capazola.com, C-A-P-O-Z-Z-O-L-A.com, and it's all under uh, the, the tour dates there. Uh, there's an Amazon spy show coming out called Citadel. I play a doctor in the first episode. It's a spy thriller, futuristic uh, thing. It's going to be a fun show, I think. Uh, I'm in the first episode as a doctor, and then I'm in the Batman playing um, an American journalist. Briefly, I think um, it'll be brief. But I've, uh, And also, the the thing I'm proudest of is uh, The Phantom of the Open. It's a golf comedy. I have some scenes with Mark Rylance and Sally Hawkins. It's a sweet little movie. It was supposed to come out in the fall, and it just it'll be out in April. And it's it's a base about about a real life golfer from England, a goofball, a troublemaker. And I, I saw the the crew screening a few months ago, and it's really good. It's funny. It's goofy, and I'm very proud of it. Excellent. Look forward to seeing all of that. Thank you. And Daphne, how about you? Where can our audience find uh, you and what you're up to? So um, I'm Brighton. My shows are early June. I'm starting a new show called Out and About, which is about uh, what I found out in the world after COVID. I went the doors open and we all came out and found out that um, unfortunately sex is gone and Boris is still there. Please follow me on Comedy or uh, look at my website, uh, but not today, tomorrow when I uh, update it. Uh, <laughs> Well, I have absolutely loved this. And from now on, I'll always think of Duffner as the Jew who's always filled with either chicken soup or rage. And Mike as the Jew who's the son of Linda Capazola from La Rochelle.
<laughs> and as my grandmother used to say when she wanted to end my telephone calls, you must have better things to do than talk to me, and you must have better things to do than talk to us, which is a good thing, as sadly we've come to the end of this week's show. We'd like to thank our wonderful guests, Mike Capazola and Daphna Baram. Follow them on social media. Follow us on social media at you talking without the G. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and share the show with everyone you know. And check out patreon.com forward slash Jew talking. Still without the G. If it's not a chutzpah to ask, we'd love you to leave us a great review as it helps other people find the show. And join us next time on Jew Talking to Me. Jew Talking to Me was hosted by me, Philip Simon. And me, Rachel Krieger. It was produced by Russell Walkin and judged by our mothers. Bye. 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 Bye.